We're going to open God's word and God is going to speak, loved ones. My question for you isn't whether or not is going to speak. My question for you is, are you going to listen to what God is going to say to you? Because he has something to speak into each and every one of our hearts and our lives this morning. And the question is whether or not we're going to listen. And so by God's grace, my heart and my desires that all of us would do just that, is that we would listen to what God has for us. Now, just as a note real quick before we go any further, last week we talked about this theme, this theme that drives throughout the book of Titus and this idea around this correlation between theology, what I know about God, um, and how that impacts and informs our conduct and our character as followers of Christ. That what I know about God, what I know about his word, it changes how I live, how I think, how I act and how I conduct myself and that theology informs and instructs how you and I live. And so today we're going to see that very same thing uh, happening, but we're going to see it fleshed out through the lens of the gospel and how your life and my life has changed from before we knew Christ uh, in terms of now after we have come to know Christ and how we're different and how we interact with one another. And so the gospel, the gospel and sound doctrine are going to produce godly living. That what is manifested in my life, what comes out of my life, how I live, how I function, how I operate, is tied to this. And so um, the, the, the main idea of the text this morning where God is driving you and I today is this right here. Rooted in the gospel. And that's a really, really important qualifier. Rooted in the gospel. So because of the gospel, a church in order will live in a manner that demonstrates the power of salvation. So you and I are going to live in a manner, we're going to live in a way that demonstrates, that proves, that shows that you and I have been changed by Christ. And it's manifested in terms of how we interact with one another. And so while there's very much missional aspects to this, there's very much components of this that will drive us out into the world and to those around us, the the primary manifestation, the primary aspect of what Paul's after here is how you and I as a people are changed amongst one another and how you and I interact with one another in that respect. And so he's going to highlight the importance of community. He's going to highlight the importance of us sharing life with each other. That as Christians, you and I were never intended to be autonomous. We were never intended to go it alone or on our own or do our own thing. But God very much intended and designed for us to share life with one another. So I'm going to read the text. I'll tell you what, why don't we stand as we honor the reading of God's word. And I know the light keeps fluctuating. Sun must have gone behind a cloud. Got dark there for a moment. Um, That's just part of having natural light as a part of the lighting here. But here we go. Titus 2, starting in verse 1, I'm going to read through the end of the chapter and encourage you to follow along. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. 
slaves or bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. God's word to you and I, loved ones. Amen? Amen. Amen. Go and have a seat and let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come before you, God, we pray. We pray that your word would have all authority in our lives. God, we pray that, uh, that, that your spirit would have the freedom to come and to move in and amongst us here today. God, this is our custom, not only for us, we pray for another church in the area, and I pray for Abiel Diaz and for Ciudad de Gracia. God, we thank you for this group of believers. And we thank you for, for a church that loves you and wants to minister to um, Spanish speakers and pray that you would be honored and glorified in that body here today, that you'd be speaking through Pastor Abiel. And God, for us, we pray that you would come and speak to us here this morning. God, that your word would have the fullness of authority in our lives, that, that we would be submitted and surrendered to you in all things. God, we pray that you would come and, and speak into the specific aspects of our life that we need to hear from you on. So God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the authority that it has in our lives and pray that you would be honored and glorified in all things. So Jesus, we thank you. We love you. And we pray this all in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, Titus 2. Uh, Titus 2. And the title of the message this morning is The Church in Order. And if you're sitting there going, wait, 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 The Church in Order, what, what do you mean? That's the title of the series. Uh, what's the title of the sermon? Yep, same thing. Okay, think of this as a title track, uh, if you will. It wasn't that I was lazy in titling the sermon this week. Uh, that is very much on purpose. But uh, when, when we look at the church in order, this really is for all of us. And, and certainly what we looked at last week with respect to leadership, what we're looking at next week with respect to mission, very much a part and a piece of that as well. But this really is for us as a church, how we function and engage and, 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 and do life with one another. This helps us to understand what a biblical, God-honoring community of believers looks like to engage with and interact with one another. And if you were to look around the room, you, you see people of, of all ages. And we find ourselves in different phases in life, different seasons of life. Some of you walked in here this morning, and this week has been phenomenal for you. Others of you walked in here this morning, and you are so thankful to tie off last week because that was miserable. And next week couldn't be any worse, but it might be equally worse. And yet all of us find ourselves in a specific place, and God is working and ministering and, 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 and weaving all of that together. And he's doing that work. And so this is teaching us how do we interact with one another. If you look at the structure of the text, normally what you see in the scriptures and certainly what is typical of our preaching is you see the motivation for why we do what we do and then it's followed up with, okay, this is then how it's manifested in our lives. And yet here today, notice where Paul will start with this overarching statement in verse 1. In verse 2 through 10, he's going to um, get at really the conduct and the character of people. 
And then in verses 11 through following, he's going to get at the motivation. So it's kind of backwards from how we typically engage things, but that's how the text is moving through. And so that's how we want to move through this morning. So the church in order, three things from Titus 2 that we want to get at here this morning. And notice verse 1. Here's the first thing that you see of a church that's in order is it adheres to gospel truth. A church in order will adhere to gospel truth. Verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, I just want to make a note real quick that the, the chapter 2 is actually bookended by this same idea. If you go down to verse 15, it says, declare these things. That word declare is the same word as teach. And so this really is, you, you could make point four and have this same point uh, in terms of the text. But the church in order adheres to gospel truth. And Paul is telling Titus, listen, teach. Let's talk about that word teach for a moment. It's probably more informal than you and I would initially think. And typically when we think of teaching, we think of formal instruction. And uh, that word there is, is more uh, the idea of what's on our lips. It's speech or utterance. It's what comes to mind. It's what we find working its, itself into our conversation. So these are the things that we talk about. These are the things that we think about. This is the stuff that, that, that is coming up as we speak to one another. Okay, what, what is that? Well, we're to speak what accords with sound doctrine. Healthy doctrine, healthy teaching. See, so loved ones, what should be true of you and I is that the gospel, sound doctrine, sound teaching should be a regular part of what we're saying. It should be a regular part of our conversation. It should be informing how we think about things. It should constantly be on our mind. Now, let me put this into the broader context for a moment because I think this is helpful to understand this. And think about, go back to the end of chapter 1 in verse 16. And remember, Paul is talking about these false teachers, false converts, whatever you want to call them, in verses 10 through 16 of chapter 1. And he says this in verse... 16. He says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. That's kind of his summary of what has happened there. Yeah, these people will tell you they love Jesus. These people will tell you that they know him. They don't know him. Look at their life. That's what he's saying there. And so on the heels of that, he goes, but as for you. So he is putting Titus and leadership and the church in contrast to these people back in verse 16. So as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And so he's saying, listen, well, these people back in uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 16, they'll tell you they love Jesus. They tell you they love God. But all you got to do is look at their life. And that's uh, unmistakably false. But as for you. You teach what accords with sound doctrine. You talk about, you speak about what's on your mind is, is in accordance with this thing. And then, so then you get to chapter, or sorry, verse two and following. And he begins to give the specific instructions of what that is to look, what that looks like and how we live and how that's manifested in our lives. And so what, what Paul is telling Titus is this becomes the witness and the testimony that the gospel is actually at work in our life. This is the evidence that God has truly gripped and grabbed your heart and mine and so, loved one, ask yourself, just ask yourself, do I adhere to gospel truth? Am I talking about, am I speaking about, am I thinking about what accords with sound doctrine? Does that have um, impact on the decisions that I'm making? Does this so influence my life that, 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 that it permeates the whole of my life? Or is this something that happens on a Sunday morning when I show up to church, but when I roll out of here, it sits on the back burner for the rest of the week? 
You cannot be a faithful, committed follower of Jesus and do it part-time. You're all in or you're all out. There's no middle ground with this. So the church in order adheres to gospel truth and we do it comprehensively. Not perfectly, but comprehensively. Notice then secondly, in verses 2 through 10, and where we'll spend the bulk of the remainder of our time, the church in order lives in gospel power. The church in order will live in gospel power. This really gets to the nuts and bolts of what it looks like to adhere to gospel truth. This is where the theology of teaching sound doctrine now informs the character and the conduct of our lives. This is what is accomplished in the life of a person who is committed to following Jesus. And so Paul gives three different groups of people that he addresses. He addresses men, and then he subdivides that group into older men and younger men, and then he addresses women, and he addresses older women and younger women, and then he addresses slaves. And we've talked about this multiple times, not our concept of slavery. Uh, The more modern application and understanding of this would be uh, in the workplace. But what I want us to do, let me just pause for a moment. And that when we read through verses 2 through 10, right, you have older men, you're sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, and you're sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. And older women, you're reverent behavior, not slanders of, uh, or slaves to much wine. You're going to teach what is good, and you're going to train young women. And all of a sudden, you're just like, man, we could just create list on list on list today if we wanted to. Be like 15 lists with four points each, and you just, for you super type A'ers, that'd be your favorite sermon ever. But for the rest of you, be like, who cares? And so what what I want us to do is I want us to step back from the micro and the specifics. And let's look at this from a macro perspective. Look at this 30,000 foot view for a moment here. And, And let me just have us think for a second. Consider why. Why does Paul have to flesh out for each of these groups, this is what this looks like? Because this is what's not happening And why why is it not happening in the church? Well, the broad range of issues that shows up, and notice it shows up in every demographic. I think that's helpful, isn't it? Right? You don't get to a certain age, a certain point where I'm like, yep, I'm fully sanctified, just waiting to die. Jesus is going to come back eventually, but like I'm nails right now. That doesn't happen, does it? Every demographic is represented. And so so what, what he's getting at is that the entirety of the church is broken. I love you and you're broken. I'm broken because of sin, right? We, we, we live under the weight and the curse of sin. And so, so Paul's not going, Hey, listen, Titus, I know you guys totally got this figured out, but there's going to be this group of people 2000 years ago and they're going to be jacked up and messed up and they're just going to be a hot mess. So I'm going to write this to you guys, but it doesn't really have any bearing on you. No, he's like, y'all are messed up. Which, it fits with the whole of human history since Genesis 3. Since sin entered into the world, we are broken and fallen. And I need us, okay? Listen, here's where the reality of of us being sinful and broken in church is so crucial for us. Because if we want to sit here and pretend like, wow, you know, I'm not that bad. Then you, you miss the whole heart and the point of what he's after right here. You're broken. I'm broken. We have issues and we need to own this. In fact, let's just help one another own this here. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and tell them, I love you and you have issues. (laughs) Why 
Why are you laughing? It's not funny. Okay, no joke. No joke. No joke. There was, there was some married couples, and I'm not going to speculate on what happened before church, but it was just like, I'm not going there. I'm not going there. And some of you, some of you, you enjoyed that too much, right? Which proves my point that we're broken. Now, now you remember Jesus? Remember Jesus in John 8? And they're getting ready to stone the adulterous woman. And, and, and they're picking up rocks. And, like, and he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What does he say? Yeah, okay. It sounds like mumble, mumble, mumble to me. But I heard something about sin from someone. Okay, but like, let him who is without sin be the first to cast a stone. And, and what happens? People just start dropping rocks, right? Even the, the hypocritical, self-righteous Pharisees knew, okay, we're out. And so I don't want you to hear these exhortations as, as solely some kind of destination that we arrive at or like, hey, these are the only things that, that I have to become or do. Here's what I want us to hear this as, is realizing that God is in the process of conforming you and I to the image of his son. That, that he is working in us in this awesome way to rescue us from our sin and from our brokenness and our past. And he's creating this beautiful community where we flourish in a way with one another, not, not perfectly. Because it'll never be perfect this side of eternity. But we're, we, we, we function and flourish and live with one another in a way that, that is honoring and pleasing to him. And see, all of this then accords with sound doctrine. So the church in order lives in gospel power. Let's deal with each of the demographics or the groups that he deals with. Verse 2, older men. And he starts with older men in verse 2 and then he finishes with younger men in verse 6 through 8. So I'll start with older men. We'll do women and then finish up with men. But notice this first of all about older men. He says this, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. And then you're to be sound in three different things, in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Okay, let's just deal with this first of all, older. Because I know what everyone's thinking, like, how old? And perspective is helpful, right? Because when you're a kid, 30 is old. My daughter, not too long ago, I said, Kara, what do you think is old? She's like, 30. 30 is so old, Dad. I was like, well, that kind of stinks because uh, your parents are old then, right? And, but when you're 30, 30's not old, man. 30's like vibrant, right? Maybe 60 is old, but you get to 60 and you're like, 60's not old. And see, as you get older, the one thing you can appeal to is you have perspective, right? So you just tell younger people, hey, I got perspective um, that you just can't possibly have right now on this. But the question we all have is, is what is older, and we have, this, we have this silly thing in our society where we want to look down on being older. The scriptures don't look down on age. The scriptures honor age. In fact, most cultures throughout history have, have been very honorable of those who are older. And no doubt in the church that should be true. Here's, here's a couple of different ways to think of this. One way, one guy described this as some older, right? So both men and women, kind of the idea of all of your children are grown and out of the home. Uh, John MacArthur used 60 uh, in his commentary, saying that that was roughly uh, the number. And so there's, there's nothing hard and fast. But here's the deal. This is what all of us should, should long to become. So you might be a man who's in here who's 25 or 30 or 35. That doesn't mean you're like, well, I got two and a half decades before I got to be uh, sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled. No, no, that, that, aspire to that now. Don't, don't be a knucklehead and wait 30 years before you become that. You can be that now. But he tells us this is what older men are to be. 
that they're temperate, right? This sober-mindedness, this, I'm temperate. I'm not controlled by other things. That that you're dignified. There's something honorable or respectable about you. There's self-controlled. I'm not given to the things that maybe I was once prone to be given to before. And then he talks about being sound in three different things. Sound in faith and love and steadfastness. And I think what he's getting at here is he's talking about the different dynamics of the different relationships that exist. And so to be sound in faith is to be sound in our relationship with God. To be sound in love is to be sound in our relationship with others. And then I think this is actually just kind of funny um, in the sense that God is just honest about our sinfulness, but to be sound in steadfastness is that you know you just have to endure with other people. You just realize like, yeah, we're broken and sinful and sometimes people are obnoxious and annoying and so I have to endure for the sake of these relationships. And one commentator put it really well. He, he said, mature Christianity is defined as a commitment to the maintenance of both the vertical and horizontal relationships. So vertical between us and God, horizontal between um, ourselves and others that comprise the Christian community. And that, loved ones, as we age, it should bring with us an increasing love of God and his people. And it's manifested in kingdom work and kingdom service. And so as I get older, right, as I age, I'm more committed to Christ and to his kingdom, but I am equally more committed to the people that comprise the kingdom of God. And then you've got the American conception of old age. So let me just, let me just speak bluntly, lovingly, but bluntly on this. Because I have seen in my lifetime, and I think what will continue to be a massive detriment to the church if the tide is not turned. Let me phrase it as a statement and let me talk about it for a minute. Old age, retirement, call it whatever you want, is not an excuse to abdicate ministry. Did you hear me? Old age, retirement, whatever you want to call it, is not an excuse to abdicate ministry. Now we have this cultural conception in our mind that, that, that when I get to a certain age, I get to a certain point and I retire, it's like, I've paid my dues. I've put in my time. I'm done. I'm going to go do my own thing. And my question to you is, where do you see that in the kingdom of God? Like where, where, where in God's economy do you reach this point where it's like, Hey, I'm off the hook. I don't have to do this anymore. You'll see it anywhere. You're certainly not going to find that in the scriptures. In fact, I think you find just the opposite of that. We don't ever get to this point where we graduate or we stop serving the Lord. Now, I understand that it might look different. Maybe the roles change. Maybe the capacity changes. But we don't stop. We don't stop. And, and, and I fear, I, I've seen this in my lifetime where, where, where I've some of the most qualified, gifted, capable people, those who have this incredible wealth of wisdom, and it's like, well, I don't want to do this anymore. They just walk away to watch daytime soaps. I mean, I don't even know what they're doing, but they're not in ministry. Let me tell you what also, I mean, this, this actually kills me. I, I feel like a part of my soul dies every time I hear someone say this is when I hear an older person say something to the effect of, well, I don't really have much or I don't have anything to offer. I love you and you're just wrong. You're wrong. 
You're flat out wrong on that. You might not be as efficient as you once were. You might not have the capacity you once did. You might not have the stamina or the energy that you did at at a, a particular point at time in your life. But what you have is you have a wealth of wisdom and experience and knowledge. You have this rich collection, this rich history of what it is to walk with Christ. And maybe you're like, you know what, Mike? I didn't get saved till I was 70. Okay, well, you have a rich collection of what life devoid of Christ looks like. But you can't create that in 10, 20, 30, 40 years. You only have that if you have 60, 70, 80 years. You have all kinds of things to offer. But you have to be willing to offer them. In fact, I was struck this week at just how much God loves using old people. If I could say it that way, God loves using old people. Abraham was 75 years old when God said, all right, let's go. Moses was 80 when he went into Egypt to lead the people out. And then he had to wander around the desert for another 40 years with those knuckleheads. Paul, in his writing to Philemon, talks about being an old man and yet still very much engaged in ministry. And not just in the scriptures. We could talk about all kinds of other examples of this. I came across this. I mean, this, I don't care how old you are. This was pretty humbling to read this. Um, John Wesley Famous pastor, theologian, listen to this. John Wesley at the age of 83, after traveling roughly a quarter of a million miles on horseback. That alone is painful, all right? After traveling roughly a quarter of a million miles on horseback, having preached more than 40,000 sermons and producing roughly 200 books and pamphlets, he regretted that he was unable to read and write for more than 15 hours a day without, without his eyes becoming too tired to work. What a slouch. <laughs> I mean, that's, cha- I don't care how old you are. That's challenging, isn't it? It goes on and it says this. After his 86th birthday, he admitted to an increasing tendency to lie in bed until 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> Someone get that man the book of Proverbs and point out all that it says about sluggards, right? I mean, it's like, this is insane. But what it points out is it bears out the reality that you might be older and maybe you don't do some of the things you used to, but there's still plenty, plenty, plenty that can be offered. And the church is blessed. It's blessed by the wisdom and the insight and the experience that you have. Pour it back into us. You got to pass it on. You got to invest that into us. Older men, sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Older women... Likewise, there be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. And so here, notice a few things about older women's character to aspire to. To reverent in behavior. This is the idea that there's a holiness that's close to the heart of God. That you love the things that God loves. That, that you're not um, slanders or slave to much wine. Which is, uh, this is the only demographic that Paul does not specifically say self-controlled in. Um, And yet, I think he's saying it just in a different way here, that you're controlling your tongue and you're controlling your appetite. Older women, these are who you're to be. You're you're to have a heart for God and you're to be self-controlled in who you are and what you do. And then notice what he says next in verse 3. They're to teach what is good. They're to teach what is good. And Pastor Ryan rightly pointed out this week as we were talking about the text, he said, you know, what I love about that is on the heels of what you see in chapter 1, that the role of elder is reserved solely for men. It's not that God says women can't teach. He just gives a specific prohibition in the gathering of the church. 
what Paul, Paul is actually affirming women. He's saying, yeah, not, not only can you teach, you should teach. We need you to teach. Becky and I were talking this week. She mentioned a book that she's been reading, and, and it talks about making a distinction between the gifting of teaching and the office of teaching in the church, which I thought was really helpful to grab that. And how older women, we need you to teach. We need you to teach and to train the younger women and notice some of the things specifically uh, that show up here. That are teach what is good, verse 4, and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. And all of this is what we see at the end of verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. That's part of what drives this and the motivating factor for this. But older women, you're to teach and to train younger women to love their husbands and children. And there, there is a primacy and a priority to that order. And far too often in the family, what do we do? We love our kids more than we love our spouse. And then when they move out of the house, we can't understand why we don't really want to be with each other. It's because we flip-flopped God's mandate for marriage and family. And so you older women, man, go train younger women. Um, Maybe that sounds self-serving as a husband, but I'll I'll take it, okay? Train my wife how to love me more than my kids. I like that. Um, But it's not self-serving because it's God's word, right? It's right there in the text. And to train them to be self-controlled, right? We've seen that in all of them, to be pure. I think pure is just the precursor to reverent, right? The idea of a holiness that's close to the heart of God. Hey, we're just moving you towards that. And here's the one that people tend to get hung up on here, working at home. We tend to get really hung up on this. What does this mean? What does this not mean? And we want to be prescriptive on this and whatnot. And so let's let's just talk about what this is and what this isn't for a moment. Because what Paul's not saying here, what he's not getting at is that women cannot work outside the home. That's not what he's saying. What he's getting at here is he's concerned about addressing the heart of a woman. Paul wasn't concerned about career women. That wasn't his concern. That wasn't even something that was really worth speaking into. That wasn't something that happened much in his day. What he's emphasizing here is that that, that living in the gospel power for a woman, an older woman, you're going to train a younger woman for a younger woman, living in the gospel power is that I love my husband and I love my child because I love God more than anything else. That's what he's pressing them towards here. That above a career, above any other form of self-fulfillment, because I love God, I will love my husband and I will love my children. So it doesn't mean that I can't work, but if a job or a career interferes with your ability to do that, then yes, it undermines what's going on in the scriptures. And so let's just be, let's just push this a little bit further. Can women work? Well, let's just be honest about this. Some of you have no choice. You're a single mom. What else are you going to do? You don't have a choice. Your husband can't work. Incapacitated for some reason. What else are you going to do? The scriptures aren't, aren't, aren't so, 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 so rigid and grotesque as to not understand that reality. <clears throat> That's not my heart or my concern in pressing this. My heart or my concern is for people who think they don't have another choice. Whether because of cultural pressure. Whether because of the standard of living that they want to uphold. And so, whatever it might be, my, my question to you is, are you working to maintain a standard of living... Are you working to maintain a level of comfort that you're unwilling to sacrifice in order to make biblical truths a priority? That's my question. 
I'm not implying that anybody is. I don't have anybody in mind. I'm just asking a question. If you're upset with that, you're probably upset with the spirit pressing in on you on that. And so let me just leave it like this. When you look at what God is laying out in the scriptures right here, are you attempting to accomplish what God has given to us? And that's something that you get to work out with your husband and you get to work through. And all of these things, right? Not only that, but being kind and submissive and all of these that the word is not reviled. So then he moves from younger women over to younger men. And he says this in verse six and following. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Right there it is again. And then verse seven and eight, which I think are contrasted with what we see back in chapter one, verses 10 through 16. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. And we do this so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So he's like, man, y'all need to be self-controlled. Right? Every group, every demographic has that put on them. But he also talks about show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works. And I think that's contrasted with what you see at the end of chapter 1, verse 16, that they're unfit for any good work. So here he's going, listen, these people profess to know God, but they don't, right? It's not manifested at all in their life. So for you, here's how I want it to be manifested, that you would be an individual, a model of good work, and your teaching show integrity and dignity, right? Honest, upright, morally sound, and that's contrasted with what we see back in chapter 1, verse, or, yeah, chapter one, verse 10 and verse 12, where they're deceivers, deceivers and liars, right? The antithesis of integrity and honesty. And they were told to, to have sound speech. Verse 15, talking about them being defiled and nothing being pure. And really what Paul is pressing for young men is that your life would speak for itself. That your life, your conduct, who you are, who you profess to be and what is actually manifested, that it would actually speak for itself. And so here's my question. This is really applicable for all of us. The question isn't whether or not your life says something about you. It does. The question is, what does your life actually say about you? The fruit or the evidence or the manifestation of how you invest your time, energy, resources, and the whole of who you are. Is it saying about you that you are a person who professes to know God, but deny him in his works? Or is it saying about you that you are a person who um, professes to know God and it is proven in your life. And he moves on from older men, and then older women, younger women, younger men, and then he moves into slaves, bond servants, uh, really a work application in our understanding. And he says this, you're to be submissive to your own masters and everything. Do what your boss tells you to do. They're to be well-pleasing because you work hard and you do your job. You're not argumentative. You're not pilfering or stealing, but you're showing all good faith that everyone in your workplace recognizes this good faith about you so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our savior. See, loved ones, when you go to work, listen to me, when you go to work when you show up in the workplace, when you go tomorrow morning, you walk through those doors, um, you have the opportunity to make the gospel appealing or to make it repulsive to your coworkers. And you will do one of those two things. You, you, you don't get to opt out. Well, I don't really want to be on display at work. It doesn't work like that, does it? 
Hey, I'm going to come in on Monday. Y'all can make no judgments whatsoever about me. I'm just going to do my job. Don't read anything into it. That's not life. So you're going to go to work and you're going to make the gospel appealing. You're going to make it repulsive. And that's what he's pushing us towards here. Right? This is what happens as we interact as a body and how we push each other and challenge each other. That's why discipleship is so important. As you go to work, you have a really bad day on Monday and Tuesday and you're sitting there at Life Group Tuesday night and, it's like, and you have someone else going, hey, you got to go back in on Wednesday and you got to get it right, man. Why do we need people speaking into our lives? The church in order. The church in order. It adheres to gospel truth. It lives in gospel power. Verses 2 through 10 gives us all of what that looks like. This is what it is to live in gospel power. And then finally this here, we get the motivation for it all in verse 11 through 14. It's motivated by God's gospel work. It's motivated by God's gospel work. In fact, look at verse 11. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. So there's, there's the gospel, there's God's grace, there's the work of God. And notice three things, three things that motivate why you and I are going to be what we've just spent the last 30 minutes talking about. First of all, um, look at the second half of verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. God's grace brings salvation to us. This is such a good starting point for us. This is such a good reminder for us to remember where you and I have come from. I think as Christians, we need to do a much better job of remembering who we were before Jesus was a part of our life. It would serve us so well to have, to have seasons where we would stop and reflect and to think back and rhythms where we would be reminded of who we were before Christ was controlling our lives. To be reminded of the fact that you and I were under the penalty of sin. That the wrath of God was racing towards us. Rightfully so. In total fairness and justice, because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our choosing to go our way instead of God's way. And that we were separated from God. But Christ, in his perfect, flawless work on our behalf, goes to the cross and bears the wrath of God in your place and in my place. Right? We're motivated by God's gospel work because we're motivated by what Christ has done for us. And so when we say that the gospel is just as meaningful for us today as it was the day that we got saved, that's part of what we have in mind. It's that we still need Jesus. You still need, you can't do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. We don't work our way towards salvation. It's not like, okay, well, I got saved by grace, but I'm going to earn it. It doesn't work that way. In fact, I think you could argue that the gospel becomes more meaningful the longer we've walked with Jesus because you and I understand just how much we'd stand to lose if it was taken from us. The church in order is motivated by God's gospel work. First of all, brings salvation. Second of all, gives us training. It gives us training. Look at verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So it trains us in a couple ways. One, to renounce sin or ungodliness or worldly passions. And then secondly, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly. And so God is going to train us through salvation that you and I are not slaves to sin. That we are not slaves to our past. Here's what Paul tells the church in Romans 6. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as an instrument for righteousness. Now listen to what he says next. Listen, listen, hear this loved ones. 
For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. When, when he says you can be trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, that's not something that just sounds good but can never actually happen. That happens. You can have victory over sin. You can have victory over addiction and struggle and issues in your life. Not in your own power, but the power of Christ. Training us to renounce ungodliness, but also to live self-controlled and upright and godly. And again, here, theology is informing and instructing our conduct and our behavior. And as I know God, he changes not only my mind, but how I live and think and conduct myself and operate. And brings salvation. (coughs) It gives us training. And thirdly, this. It brings hope and waiting. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope. Which is what? Well, Paul tells us. It's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Won't that be awesome when he comes back? I mean, that's going to be awesome. I would love, I think all of us, right, would, be, would love to be alive uh, to see that happen. Okay, worst case scenario, you die and you're in front of him. Okay, so like in one sense, either way it's going to happen. In a moment, you're going to be here and then bam, you're going to be right in front of Jesus. Now, I think it'd be cool to just watch the skies part and him come rolling back in and, and the graphic images of Revelation 1 and the sword in his mouth and all that cool stuff. Um, but I don't know, maybe that's weird for other people, but I think that'd be pretty awesome to see. Okay, but either way, right, either way. That's what we're waiting for. But look at verse 14. Look at what happens as we wait. Speaking of Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So he's talking about redemption. He's talking about sanctification and he's talking about service. And so as you and I wait for something better, we've been purchased by Christ. He's, he's, he's purifying us. He's, he's causing us to look more and more like himself. And then he's going to make us zealous for good works. That's what happens in the heart and the mind of someone who's committed to Jesus. We find ourselves longing and zealous for good works. Loved ones, let me just ask you this. Are you zealous for good works? Are you zealous for that? Are you hungry for that? Do you desire that? God help us. God help us that we would be a church in order, that we would be people because of salvation, because of the great grace of our God, that we would be motivated to live in a manner that demonstrates the power of God's salvation to us. Amen? Amen. Amen.